Today we are looking at Peter going to the church in Jerusalem and explaining what happened in Acts chapter 10. Go back and listen to that message from before the holidays. It was called the Converted Church, where God shows up to Peter, not first to convert Cornelius, though he does do that, and his entire household, but really to convert Peter. Because Peter doesn't think he's supposed to be there, and he doesn't believe he's supposed to spread the gospel to them at first. Well, God shows them through that vision that that's exactly where he wants them to go, and the Holy Spirit falls and fills them. They baptize them, and Peter goes back to Jerusalem, and you would think they would be celebrating, saying, Hallelujah! Jesus is now spreading to the ends of the earth. But in fact, what we find in Acts chapter 11 is Peter is in the hot seat. That's right, the apostle is in the hot seat with the church because of what he's done. And so today, I'm calling today's message, Heaven's Hammer Blows to Hypocrisy, because we're going to see this told, retold through the eyes of Peter himself, and this fourfold vision from heaven to push back this critique that comes against Peter. I'm just going to read the first three verses. I'll be preaching all the verses 1 through 18 together, The follow along verses 1 through 3. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. The Gentiles are non-Jewish people. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Heaven's hammer blows to hypocrisy. Let's pray. Well, fathers, we open your holy word and we see your amazing work done 2,000 years ago, not only through the ministry of Jesus, but also the continued ministry of Jesus through his apostles, our apostles in the early church. Lord, we pray that you would reveal to us truth today that would apply to us today. And just as you are committed to rooting out hypocrisy In the early church, Lord, I pray that you would root it out of our hearts, out of our souls today, that we might be bold witnesses for Christ to every people, every tribe, every tongue. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you're as shocked as I am by verse 3 of chapter 11. But Jesus has set this up, right? At the end of Matthew's gospel, he tells us to go to the nations and baptize them in his name to all of the world to make disciples. In chapter 1 of Acts, he tells them to start in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth that we would be his witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. And yet here in Acts chapter 11, uh, Peter goes back to Jerusalem. He has just won an entire household of Roman citizens, a very elite people here in the capital area of Caesarea. And he goes back, and the first thing that he encounters is not worship to Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord. It's not a big party, a celebration. It's furrowed brows. It's people shaking their heads. It's people looking at the floor saying, not my apostle, right? <laughs> It's critique. I can't believe what you just did, Peter. You're going to mess this whole thing up. We have been circumcising our children and our families for over 1,800 years, and all of a sudden you're just going to fling open the doors and let any uncircumcised person into our church? What is going on, Peter? You even, get this, 
ate with them. Now, when I hear that critique, it just echoes out of the Gospels. Do you remember that? Where Jesus was hanging around with sinners, prostitutes, etc., tax collectors, and the critique was that he was eating with them. And you see that over and over again. Our Galatians reading today, Cephas is Peter. He, he pulls away during a meal. You say, what is the deal with eating with people? Well, one of the things you have to understand about Judaism in the first century, there's a movement called Pharisaism or the Pharisees. And they had a lot of additional laws outside of the Bible. In fact, there were 341 rabbinic traditions. And two-thirds of those laws, two out of every three, had to do with something called table fellowship. Who you ate with, what kind of food you ate with them. In fact, in the letters, the epistles we have, there's a lot of instructions on what to do, whether you should eat something, whether it's been sacrificed to idols. There was a very much a preoccupation with saying kosher. And so when Peter shows up there and he sees this animal of all these quote-unquote unclean animals and walks into an uncircumcised person's house, they are reverting back to their Phariseeism. Do you see that? They're, they're becoming Pharisees. And let's be honest, there's sometimes a bit of a Pharisee alive in churches all over the world today in, in each one of us. Where we know we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but this legalism just creeps up and draws lines and excludes people. And in this moment, Peter is confronted. He's critiqued by them. And there's a fourfold account. We get this summary of chapter 10 basically retold through his own experience and through his own eyes. So if you're taking notes today, heaven's hammer blows to hypocrisy. Here are the four heavenly ways that God throws down the gauntlet, does the one, two, three, four punch to continue his conversion of the church. The first hammer blow to hypocrisy here is heaven's vision itself. Heaven's vision Verses 4 through 8, Peter stands up against this critique, and I'm going to read verses 4 to 10. This is him retelling the vision, which we read in chapter 10, but here it goes again. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa. That's another port city south of where this happened, where the conversions happened. Praying, and in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey, and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. The first hammer blow to their hypocrisy is heaven's vision itself. Now, Peter is praying, we get this in chapter 10, and God, in a trance, speaks to him. He gives him this vision of this great white sheet descending from heaven with all sorts of animals, clean and unclean animals, and he hears from heaven, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, I'm not going to do that. Ooh, gross, I don't eat unclean things. I'm Jewish, I keep kosher, this will never happen. And he gets this peculiar pushback from heaven. What God has made clean or common, do not call uncommon or unclean. Now, 
That doesn't happen just once. It happens twice. And then it happens three times, we're told. So literally the same vision recurs. So he doesn't only hear this two times, rise, kill, eat, uh, don't call it unclean. He hears it six times. Do you see the math there? Six times from heaven, God says, kill, eat, don't call it unclean. Kill, eat, don't call it common. Kill, eat, don't call it unclean. And then right at that moment we see in chapter 10, these men come up, deployed from this Roman citizen saying, hey, our master had a vision and we want you to come with us. You have a message that we're supposed to hear. We don't know what it is. And in that moment, Peter realizes, okay, these visions are connected. I think of these Roman citizens as unclean. I think of these uncircumcised people as common. I think that we shouldn't be all on the same sheet together if you will, but God has told me three times not to think that way. I'm still very tentative, but I also don't want to go against this vision. And so he goes. The first thing that Peter brings into this really trial of sorts, if you will, before the church is, I have clearly heard from the Lord through a vision. And this vision said that I should relate to these people despite what our rabbinic traditions, despite what the Pharisees say. And the sheet here largely represents the church. The sheet here represents all these different clean and quote-unquote unclean animals together. And it's not first primarily about what Peter kills and eats, though certainly it has dietary uh, applications to it. Jesus hits this often. It's not what goes into a person that defiles them. It's what comes out of them, out of their heart. Jesus did declare all food clean, so I'm grateful that I can have bacon on my pizza now. Hallelujah. All right, Jesus declared it. This vision secondarily does kind of reinforce that, but that's not what the vision's first about. It's more of a parable about people. In fact, when going back to chapter 10, Peter walks into their, their house, their Cornelius' household. Verse 28, check this out. 10:28. he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or visit with anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person, circle the word person, common or unclean. He's already, the penny is already dropped for Peter. This is not first about lizards and animals of prey. This is about people. Yes, you can eat pork, but that's not what this vision's about. This is about people about looking at different types of people saying, common, unclean, not welcome, I'm not going. That's the vision that he pushes back to this group in Jerusalem, which, by the way, if you're new to Christianity, this is like the mothership. This is the mother church. This is the flagship of the entire movement. If you want to see Christianity move this direction, you must get the apostles and you must get Jerusalem on board. And what this vision first teaches us is that there is now a distinction that's clearly becoming more aware as the nations, as Abraham's been called to be the father of many nations, this was their thinking. That's fine if they want to become Jewish first. 
right? As long as they get circumcised, as long as they keep all of the Mosaic law, as long as they keep all the dietary restrictions, as long as they become a proselyte, as long as they dress like us, eat like us, keep the holidays like us, keep all the same Sabbaths as us, as long as they become fully Jewish, they can be believing in the Jewish Messiah. (laughs) They can be saved by the Jewish Savior. What they didn't expect is all of a sudden for this gospel to get out ahead of them and the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in a moment, saves them before they're circumcised. What? While they're still eating ham. (laughs) What? Now God's law never fades away, all right? And there's a, a moral law, even summarized like in the Ten Commandments, for example, that is still binding on all of humanity, not simply Judaism. But there are ceremonial and civil laws in the Old Testament that don't apply to you. You know, you don't sacrifice animals anymore. It's not because it doesn't matter. It's because it foreshadowed the sacrifice of Christ. It's fulfilled in him. There's these ceremonial and civil laws in the holidays, now, this is what it doesn't mean, too. I have a friend, Ari Haubin. He's born Jewish. And now he's born again, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And by the way, he's still Jewish. <laughs> he still keeps all the same holidays and so forth. But he knows this. That doesn't save me. Yeshua, the Messiah, saves me, is what he would say. I'm saved by grace through faith in Jesus. I don't have to abandon my culture. But if you weren't born Jewish, you don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to start doing all the Jewish things to be accepted by God. The gospel goes transcultural through repentance and faith in Jesus to every nation, every tribe, and it comes into us. And the moral law is still binding, but the civil and the ceremonial law is not. So they are seeing for the first time clearly here that God saves them apart from their Jewishness, that you don't have to be Jewish to believe in the Jewish Messiah. That's the first thing that becomes clear through this vision. We are all one, by the way, in Messiah. All the different animals are on the same sheet together. So the first hammer blow to their hypocrisy and ours is heaven's vision. Secondly, the second hammer blow to hypocrisy is heaven's command given to Peter. Not only does he see this vision, but look at verses 11 and 12. The command that comes from heaven, from God himself. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which, excuse me, in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. Caesarea happens to be the home of Cornelius and his household. And the spirit, that's referring to the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit of the Lord, God himself, told me to go with them, making no distinction. Do you see that? Circle the word, no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. The man here referring to is, of course, Cornelius and his entire household. So he sees the vision. The men come knocking. They tell him, we, are, we were sent from our master to come receive you because you have a message from God for us. And then in that moment, the Holy Spirit, whether audibly, clearly, it was unmistakable. He's heard from the Holy Spirit in the past. This is the Apostle Peter. He knows when he's hearing the voice of God says, go with them. Do you see that? There is a command that he is to go. This wasn't Peter 
making a decision on the fly. I think I want to. I think I don't want to. God has spoken to Peter clearly through the Holy Spirit saying, go with them. So he's had both a vision. Then these guys come knocking. And then there's a command from heaven through the Holy Spirit to go with these men. And by the way, he refers to these six brothers also accompanied me. Imagine Peter standing before this group kind of, you did what? And he's not alone saying, hey, I got this individual vision and I did it and just believe me. He's saying, these six guys, these, not those somewhere, not six guys I'm just making up and saying there were six people, just trust me. He's like, one, two, three, four, five, six. These six guys, these six brothers, and by the way, if you want to know who these six brothers are, chapter 10 tells us who they are. Verse 45 of chapter 10 says, and the believers from, look at that, among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out. We'll see the Holy Spirit in a moment. Do you see what the description of them? These guys, these circumcised guys, these uber-Jewish guys, these six guys were with me. You know, in Jewish law, according to Deuteronomy, it's on the account of two or three witnesses that a testimony stands, that a trial can go forward. Peter one up some. I got seven counting me, all right? And if you want to take me out, I got six right here. All seven of us, which is the number of completion or perfection, right? There's seven witnesses here standing here that when these guys came knocking and I heard the voice of God, we all went together. And by the way, those six other people, when they see the Spirit of God fall on these uncircumcised believers, they see it happen too. They are standing as witness. So there's a command from heaven, and there are other witnesses that will vouch for me that this was God's activity. This was God's idea, not mine. And before I go to the third hammer blow, I do want to draw attention to something I think is really neat about Peter's example as a leader. And what I would put this, this is like a mini sub-point here, but it just I had to get it in here somehow. The difference between positional authority or positional leadership, and persuasive leadership. Here's what I mean by that. He's the apostle, right? And some would argue like he's the the top apostle. Like when Pentecost happened, he was the one preaching. He was the one that stood up. When the Samaritans received the gospel, he went and laid hands on them. They received the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Peter showed up. We'll keep watching how he persuades these folks. But there is a way, and I've seen this in churches, I've seen this in businesses, I've seen this in families, where you can just use your position. I'm Peter, shut up. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm the apostle with a capital A. Get in line, fall in line. God has called me, you're to follow me, submit to me. I can even pull out Bible verses to prove it. And leaders do that all the time. I was on a Facebook group with a bunch of pastors and a young guy, young pastor was getting some pushback and he was ready to pull out a little mini preaching series on obeying your leaders for their keeping watch over your souls and submitting to those. And all the older ones were like, slow down, wait, don't do it. One guy said, positional authority is like soap. The more you use it, the less you have. It's true. We're gonna see that even though he persuades this group, it's not done yet. It's going to come up again and again. Acts 15, it'll come up again. And if he just drew a line in the sand and said, 
I'm on this side, everybody follow me, no questions asked. You would have seen a schism like none other in the early church. But he doesn't lean into his positional authority here. He uses his persuasive authority. His experience, of course, the word of God, absolutely. He, he vouches or he pulls in other witnesses here to advocate for him. And if you're a leader in any sphere, I would appeal to you, tread carefully with using your positional authority. It can become abusive quickly, but also it's not how hearts and minds are ultimately changed. We want to, as leaders, lead with our persuasive authority. Peter models that brilliantly here. It's implicit in the whole thing, the fact that he would actually even answer their critique rather than shutting the door, putting the do not disturb sign up and telling his assistant not to pass phone calls to him. So we see here from Peter not only the first hammer blow of heaven's vision given to him, which he recounts, heaven's command, which he tells them, as well as witnesses stand to defend him, but thirdly, heaven's preparation. The third hammer blow to hypocrisy is heaven's preparation. Verses 13 and 14. And he told us how, so these six brothers also accompanied me, we entered the man's house. Once we arrived at the man's house, the man here again is Cornelius. He told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So follow this. Peter and these six brothers go with him from Joppa up to Caesarea. They travel that far distance because they came and said this. Now, again, we're getting this through Peter's eyes. You go back and read chapter 10. The vision to Cornelius precedes this by a day. In fact, this whole account happens across three or four days and gets summarized in this quick little defense that he's given. But it's been collapsed, and we see Peter's vision first. But actually, this other vision preceded it, where the angel told them to send. They're making that day's journey south, and right before they arrive to knock, that's when Peter gets his vision. So this is what I mean by heaven's preparation. Peter's got a vision, but concurrent to that, parallel to that, really far away from that, just before that, it's been synchronized. So that he has an angelic appearance, this, this devout non-Jewish man who prays, gives alms to the poor, and all of a sudden has this divine appearance from an angel from heaven the day before, so that by the time they arrive, these two incidences have been completely brought into parallel, perfectly aligned, perfectly timed, so that Peter doesn't show up and say, hey, I had a vision that I'm not supposed to treat you differently. Who are you? Well, I'm a Christian. I'm an apostle, actually. I've seen the risen Christ, and I have a message for, of salvation for you. A message of what? Of salvation, how you can get saved, how you can go to heaven, how you can have a gift of eternal life. What are you talking about? It's not how that plays out, is it? They literally say, Cornelius, a centurion, a Roman centurion said, the angel told me that you would have a message of salvation for me. Again, Talk about the underhanded pitch of the century for any missionary or, or evangelist. Hi, have we been expecting you? I heard you're going to tell me how to get to heaven. <laughs> you're going to tell me how I can be saved. 
Give it to me. And by the way, sometimes people twist Acts chapter 10 to talk about like, hey, you don't have to believe in Jesus to be saved. I mean, Cornelius was devout. He prayed and God loved him, so it doesn't matter. That's not what it says. He still needed a message of salvation. His alms did not save him. His prayers did not save him. Jesus saved him. And Jesus sent Peter from Joppa all the way to Caesarea so that he would hear and believe in Jesus so that the message of salvation would come to him and his entire household. But he still needed Jesus. He still needed to hear about the cross. He still needed to hear about the resurrection. And he still needed to place his faith in Jesus, which is why we go to all the nations, tribes, and tongues, regardless of how devout a person is in another world religion, they still need to believe in Jesus. And so much of the world hasn't even heard of the name Jesus. You think I'm exaggerating, but the 1040 window, which is where most of your money that you give to us goes to for missions, there's less than one believer in millions of people. No Bibles printed in their language. There's no radio programs, no Christian bookstore, no local church. And if there were one, the state itself would probably burn it down. There's parts of the world that still need to hear about Jesus, and we still need to go. And so Peter sets an example here of going to one of the most uncomfortable situations where at that time not only is it uncomfortable for him personally and for the Romans, it's even uncomfortable for the church. Hallelujah that we celebrate missions today. But this first encounter was a hard one. And Peter crossed culturally to bring them the gospel if you want to see Peter's recounting of the gospel, verses 38 to 43, I want to read it for those who missed this message. He preaches how God anointed, verse 38, Jesus of Nazareth. This is him preaching to the entire household, to Cornelius. He anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about, Jesus went about doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil. For God was with him and we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made, him to, and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, to Christ, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Do you have sins? Yes. Believe in Jesus. You will receive the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. He died for you. He rose from the dead for you. He was sent to save you from your sins, from the power of the devil himself. Jesus, the Savior, has come into the world. And Peter goes and he preaches the same message that he was preaching to Israel. The same message that he was preaching in the synagogues is the same message that will save the Romans. It will save the ends of the earth. It will save the Assyrians. It will save the Babylonians. It will save the Egyptians. It will save the whole world. It's the same message. And as he preaches this, they've been prepared to receive this message. God himself went before him to prepare them. And as he preaches this message... We saw it months ago, but it's retold again here. Not only has heaven prepared him, 
but heaven acts. The fourth and final hammer blow to heaven's hypocrisy is heaven's action. He preaches, and verse 15 to the end, 18. As I began to speak, what did you speak? The gospel, the message of salvation, the story of Jesus. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. The beginning referring to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. And I remembered the word of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, how he said, John, referring to John the Baptist, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them, excuse me, gave the same gift to them, what gift? The gift of salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit, to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way. When they heard these things, they fell silent. Critique, gone. One, two, three, four, knockout. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles, then to the nations, then to the non-Jews, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. As he is speaking, as he is preaching, there is a demonstrable, experiential, manifest outpouring of the Holy Spirit so clear. I mean, the Holy Spirit's subjectively experienced. Would you agree? There's times where you're experiencing a filling of the Holy Spirit, and you know it, but others don't sense it. But then there's these times when the Spirit of God shows up that everybody gets it. Everybody in the room senses God is here, that you're standing on holy ground. And the day of Pentecost clearly is one of those days, so much so because wind and tongues of fire, etc. And they all started speaking in tongues. Chapter 10, we actually hear when the Spirit comes, the Gentiles start speaking in other languages and tongues. So they are literally having their own Gentile Pentecost right here in Acts chapter 10. And Peter says, just like it happened to us in Acts chapter 2, in quote, chapter and verse, you know, just like it happened to us on the day of Pentecost, the same gift was given to them, even the same manifestation of the Spirit through the speaking of languages and tongues. How could I stop God? Before the Jewish witnesses, this is what he said, read in chapter 10. Can we withhold baptism? What prevents us from baptism? We can't not pour water on these guys. We can't, we can't give, stop the water from coming because they've already received the Holy Spirit. Like, if the water is a sign and seal of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, well, it's already done, right? We're just coming afterwards to signify that this thing is a done deal. God has already moved upon them, and we're chasing after God with the water. We're chasing, get, get the water, boys. Get the hoses out. We're running after God. God has granted them repentance. I'm not twisting their arms. It was a gift he bestowed upon them. Their hearts are open. Their hearts are circumcised, which, by the way, is the Old Testament language. I think of the new birth, that they circumcise their hearts. That's what repentance is. It's been granted to them. They are ready, and they are fully included on that sheet and in the church in Caesarea and in the church in Jerusalem. 
and in the church, wherever you go, whatever kind of different critter is on that sheet, through repentance and faith in Jesus, they get to stay on the sheet, and they get to stay on the sheet together with all of us. That's what that vision signifies. Now, when you hear this message, you say, that's great, Stefan. I'm so glad that I don't have to keep the Mosaic Law. But really, what does this have to do with you and me today? It's 2020. Nobody's telling me not to eat ham in the church. Come on, Stefan. Like, what's the big deal? Why, why does this get told over and over again? And by the way, it's going to come back up in Acts chapter 15. Well, John Stott, in his great commentary, I think hit it out of the park, and it's a little lengthier of a quote, but I want to let him have the final word before we take communion. He says this, the fundamental emphasis of the Cornelius story is that since God does not make distinction in his new society, we have no liberty to make them either. Yet tragic as it is, the church has never learned irrevocably the truth of its own unity or of the equality of its members in Christ. Even Peter himself, despite this fourfold divine witness he received, later had a lapse, a bad lapse in Antioch. That's our scripture reading. Cephas is another name for Peter. There's Judaizers around. There's people who think he shouldn't be eating, and he pulls away ever so slightly, and Paul picks it up. He feels awkward, and so he pulls away. Peter, the one who just defended this, later has a bad lapse in Antioch, publicly opposed by Paul. That's where he calls him a hypocrite. <laughs> Even then, the circumcision party continued their propaganda, and the council of Jerusalem had to be called to settle the issue. We'll hit this again in Acts 15, because that's precisely what happens. Even after that, the same ugly sin of discrimination has kept reappearing in the church. In the form of racism, color prejudice, nationalism, my country, right or wrong, tribalism in Africa, and casteism in India, social and cultural snobbery or sexism, discriminating against women. All such discrimination is inexcusable even in non-Christian society. In the Christian community, it is both an obscenity, because offensive to human dignity, and a blasphemy because offensive to God, who accepts without discrimination all who repent and believe. Like Peter, we have to learn that God shows no partiality. Amen? The converted church that we hit in Acts 10, we need to be continually converted, because if we're honest with ourselves, we, we draw different barriers and lines that God has torn down through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love the fact that what we're about to do as we take communion together, the Lord's Supper together, God is masterful in the way he plans everything out. His forever sacrament for the church across the entire world is a meal. It's table fellowship. It's the very thing that divided us. Can I come? Can you come? Can we be together? Can you? Now whether you're standing in the United States of America in Pennsylvania or you're standing in Africa or you're standing in India or you're standing in Jerusalem, on the Lord's Day, the church all over the world lifts up the meal together. 
We come and we eat and we drink physically together, but spiritually together because we are one in this body. And so as we take this meal together, church, remember that we have fellowship with God, yes, but we have fellowship with one another and that this meal that we're about to partake together says that there is no distinction. Look to your left and to your right. Say, God shows no favorites. Say that out loud. God shows no favorites. Look at them. God shows no favorites, and neither will I. That's what we're about to do. Church, let's stand as we take the meal together. I'm going to invite the worship band back up for a song of praise after we take this meal. We practice open communion at Manoa Community Church, meaning if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been baptized in any church, then this meal is for you. It's not a sign of membership at Manoa. It's a sign of membership in the body of Christ. If you didn't get the bread or the wine when you leave out this place, you can...